0: Coming up next on this episode of the Unlock You podcast.
1: I think all of us want to be safe. And for people who grow up in homes where you're right, no matter what they do, it's not going to go well for them. Then it becomes an issue of, I don't want to make it worse. So I'm not going to make this person angry, Because anger is dangerous. They're making decisions based on experience, on deeply held beliefs. Angry people are dangerous. Mm -hmm. If I can make this person somewhat happy with me, if I can make them not hate me, or if I can make them even neutral towards me in the moment, then I'm not going to get hit maybe. Or if I do get hit, maybe he'll only hit me two or three times instead of beat me until I'm unconscious. These kinds of things. When you look back and you say, gosh, I wish I should have or could have, or I don't think that's helpful. I actually think that that's so much more damaging because now you're shaming yourself on something you had no control over.
0: Hey friends, thanks so much for joining us. This is Unlock You with Dr. Shaden Crawford. I'm a clinical psychologist, leadership consultant, and a really big fan of you getting to fulfill your life purpose. I want you to get unstuck and unlock your potential relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and vocationally. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. Welcome to unlock you with Dr. Shannon Crawford and I am over the moon to be one doctorate of psychology Shannon with another doctorate in psychology Shannon and I can't tell you guys how many times just because you know Dr. Shannon is kind of a unique name that people have talked to me as if I am actually Dr. Wolf. And I'm very flattered and and a compliment, but this woman is a far out of my league in the space of trauma. And I am honored that we're friends. First of all, I see her at conferences and I love to just cheer her on, but she is just an incredible woman. She has walked it out in her own journey and she's going to share some of her story. And now she is an expert forensic testimony person for uh, human trafficking she specializes in trauma and she's gonna just really unpack things and help bring clarity and solutions so if you are a human being breathing on this planet odds are good at some point or another you've gone through a crisis a trauma a disappointment and something that maybe has crushed your heart so, we want to rebuild and we're looking for post traumatic growth in this episode. So, community, we're glad you're here. And thank you, Dr. Shannon Wolf, for being our guest today. Well,
1: thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here with you and to to talk about something that is really close to my heart, and that's people who have experienced some really, really tough things and maybe even have been wounded in some way. Um, And I just want to encourage everybody that there is growth on the other side and there is hope. It does not have to always be this way.
0: Yes. So good. So good. Because A lot of times we can get stuck in the trauma and it feels like it defines us. Like I'm now wearing this label as I'm the survivor of, um, and we can just perpetually feel kind of frozen in that. What have you seen in working with people to help them get unstuck out of that label, that identity and staying frozen instead of able to emerge into hope?
1: well there are two things that i see one of them has to do with the memories and that's just one of the hallmarks of trauma these intrusive memories of the trauma but if you think about it you know we can go about our day and if we see something that is really upsetting let's say we we see a car accident and nothing happened nobody died in the accident but it was just a bad accident we'll think about that for days right now that's not a trauma but it's human nature if something is upsetting we will think about it but if something really traumatic happens to us. And remember that a trauma is something that is outside of what is expected to happen to you, but you will think about it. And I think it's it's a way of us working out what it was that did happen, And kind of putting it into place in who we are. One of the things that I hear a lot is people saying, it changed me or I'm a new person because of it. And sometimes not even in a good way. But I I actually think what happens is, yes, it does change them in a way, but it doesn't make them a different person. I think they're the same person with this extra layer of something that has happened to them. Yes.
0: That's so good. And now for God to open doors that you're able to help in the anti-human trafficking to do testimony, expert witness testimony. That's incredible.
1: You know, I still scratch my head and say, Lord, how did I get here? But yet here I am. And I do, I I go all over the United States testifying for the government in human trafficking cases, specifically those that involve children. So So what does that look
0: like in like an actual case?
1: And in an actual case, I usually am contacted by the Department of Justice, and they will tell me a little bit about the case. Um, and my job is to help the court, specifically the jury, understand what human trafficking looks like. Um, many of us already know that victims don't look like the little girl who's chained in a dark corner, dirty face, crying. That's not what a victim looks like, but the juries often think That that's what they they look like. Mm -hmm. And so I my job is to say, no, they have a smile on their face, even though inside they're they're just so wounded, so hurt. But to the world, it looks like they actually want to be where they are. And that's just not true.
0: So I help explain
1: kind of how that works. Mm
0: -hmm. So having that expert to say, while somebody has been groomed and they've now adapted and learned mm-hmm. how to survive the best they can with right. that smile on the outside. And maybe even in a trauma state, frozen, a lot of shock, denial and trauma bonding. Can you speak for a second to trauma bonding? Cause I think that resonates yeah. with a lot of people I speak to.
1: Right. So trauma bonding was actually an area that I did some actual research on. So I conducted a study and I've written some on it and I've spoken a bit on it. Um, so. What what got me to a place to actually do this study is that even after victims were removed from the trafficker and they were safe, they didn't know they were safe. Mm. And they would do all kinds of things to get back to their trafficker. And what I realized through through interviews and, and study was that it was something called a trauma bond, that they believed that they loved their trafficker. And I think that this was something that helped them survive. Yeah. It was this belief that the trafficker is right about everything, and that if they could please the trafficker, then all would go well with their lives. Mm-hmm. And so it was this constant, um this constant effort to obtain love and appreciation and um, affirmation from this trafficker. And the trafficker would always, give them a little bit of affection and then pull back where they would have to earn that affection. And so when they were removed from the trafficker, oftentimes they would feel this panicky sense to get back to him. And sometimes it would take even up to a year before those bonds were were severed. And in talking to some adults who were trafficked as teenagers or as children, one of the things that I learned from them is if somebody could have convinced them that the trafficker never loved them, that they would have been gone a long time before they actually were able to leave mm. so if they could just know, yeah were for, for the the trafficker, they were just money, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but that's a hard thing because if you think about it, this survivor. Has to look at all the different things that have happened to them. Oftentimes um, weapons have been pulled on them, they have been beaten, they have been humiliated, they have been forced to do things that they never in their wildest dreams would think that they would do. And they have they either have to look at that as something absolutely horrific, or they say, no, the trafficker was right and this over here was just not anything unusual that mm-hmm. they were asked to do and so it's it's actually a survival technique
0: yeah yeah and i think we can see that in families we can see it in romantic relationships absolutely that the same principles apply psychologically that whether it's a situation where maybe someone listening you have been trafficked and there has been something egregious to that extent And some people, you may be listening and resonating going, oh my gosh, why did I stay in that domestic abuse situation? What was this push and pull in this very heated, dramatic relationship that I couldn't get out of, or an unhealthy soul tie in a parent-child relationship? There's a lot of times these same psychological principles can show up. They're just not as exaggerated as, you know, extensive trauma. So can you speak to maybe even just that low-grade trauma where we have that bonding and how it might be a protection mechanism when we're in that situation?
1: I would love to talk about this. I'm going to speak in terms of fight and flight. Everybody has heard of fight and flight, Um, but we often don't recognize two other types of of ways of defending or responding to to fear, and that's um, freeze and submit and so we've got fight flight freeze and submit and so fight and flight um that's usually done when somebody actually thinks there's a chance that they can get away from this this um, situation where they are being threatened in some way. And fighting doesn't have to just be a physical fight. It can be a verbal fight. Mm -hmm. It can be where you become very aggressive with your language and your tone, and you're trying to back somebody away from you. And I see that with women more than I see somebody taking a swing at another person. Flight can be going someplace else in your mind, dissociating. Yeah. So it's not that they actually get to leave the room, but in their mind, they go someplace safe and, and so whatever's happening.
0: Because I think you're hitting on something so important. A lot of people either do that and they don't know the term for it, or mm-hmm. they know the term, but they're like, what is that? I've, you know, so can you just unpack right. disassociating and how that's a Yeah,
1: actually, we all dissociate if we think about it, um, I bet all of us have been on, um, on a journey, and it could be from work to home. Mm-hmm. And there's probably going to be maybe three or four miles, sometimes more than that, where we don't remember the trip. That's because we, we've traveled it so often that our minds are able to check out, and we're thinking about other things. We're thinking about a movie. We're thinking about the grocery list, all those other kinds of things. And before we know it, we're at a place in our journey, and we're thinking, huh where did those last 10 miles go? That is a type of dissociating. Everybody does it. And hopefully as long as you're driving, well, it's not dangerous, but people who are in a a, a precarious situation will sometimes dissociate their minds go someplace else. They'll think about something else. That will calm them and allow them to feel as if they're not as in as much danger as they might be. Mm-hmm. So their minds go someplace else. And it's a way of, of um, helping them to survive. Yeah. So their bodies may still be in danger, but they're protecting their sense of who they are as a human being.
0: And it's such an adaptive, wonderful thing that we have these defense mechanisms. It
1: is, it is, absolutely. And um, I'm just gonna get a little geeky here. These are connected to our parasympathetic nervous system. And what that means is, is when we feel like we're in danger, our fear response kicks in. And you know, sometimes fear is a good thing. If there's a car coming right at me, Fear of what's about to happen is going to make me move faster. It's going to get me out of the way. And this is good. So our hearts beat faster. Our eyesight gets better. We can see better from the periphery over here. Um, Our breathing gets deeper and our muscles can go fast because of adrenaline and all kinds of other things that are going on. So fear response is a good thing. It can get us out of situations, but it doesn't always get us out of situations. There are two others I want to talk about because I think they apply most often to women. There are um, freeze and submit, and freezes that that uh, during the headlights, it's like your brain stops working, yeah. and um, and instead of our heart beating faster, the heart rate actually lowers, the blood pressure lowers, vision does not become. More keen, it actually diminishes in some way. So instead of it being connected to the parasympathetic nervous system, it's paired to the sympathetic nervous system. It's a different system in the body, and so different things are happening to you. But one of the other things that happens is the the sense of pain also diminishes. So if, if um, let's say you, you get a, a blow, a hit or something, you don't actually feel it as keenly as if you weren't in, um, in that freeze response. That's Isn't so that absolutely. something? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But how many women do you, do you hear sometimes will say, it was like I was stuck in mud. I, I just couldn't move, I couldn't right. think. I, I, I wish I had have done this other thing, but I just couldn't do it. And then they blame themselves
0: for it. That's what I was gonna say. So right. I have so many clients, males and females, that when something is happening, they carry so much regret and confusion because, I mean, I didn't say anything. I just laid there. I froze. I didn't give consent by any means, but Mm -hmm. I also just was like paralyzed and it felt like I should have done something more. And a lot of that should narrative gets stuck in people's minds and they have a hard time moving past a trauma because they're stuck in that ruminating stage of I should have. And if only I had."
1: You know, the one thing that I would say to them is that you have no control over how your brain is going to respond to this fear. So you can say, I should have, I ought to have all day long, but you cannot control what your brain does in the moment. It's not a decision that you make, right? right? It's something that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And like freeze, it's submit. We've all heard of Stockholm syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. that, um, goodness, So I think it was in the 1970s, some 50 years ago, mm-hmm. there was a bank robbery in Stockholm and, uh, and psychologists around the world were puzzled at why the, the people that were inside the bank, the victims, mm-hmm. um, actually aligned themselves with, with the bank robbers mm-hmm. instead of the police. Mm-hmm. And they were even trying to protect the bank robbers. And that is a, a really good example of a submit response. And it's very similar to freeze, but it's where the, the response tries to befriend the person that you think is most dangerous to you in hopes that maybe it won't go so badly.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. trying to mitigate a bad situation yeah. by forming some kind of a bond or attachment with you. Yeah. So and the- I think we can also speak to when people start even wanting people sexually to hurt them, that may actually not be a psychologically healthy thing because something's going on that now this pairing of violence and hurt and pain is now being associated with bonding and attaching and connecting.
1: Absolutely, that was beautifully said. You were absolutely right about that. I, I think people who tend to, um, to respond with submission Mm-hmm. Are, are people who um, have also learned that no matter what they do, they won't get away from right. this situation. And I think some of that probably comes out of, of things that they learned really early in life.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So especially if I had learned helplessness as a child, mm-hmm. that kind of, if, pardon the expression, but damned if I do, damned if I don't, right. no matter what I do, it's not going to change the outcome, then right. there's a depressogenic psychological barrier like a protective that just says don't even try it's not going to work and so sometimes people also blame themselves as well that I didn't try like so maybe the person left or we broke up or there was an an, an escape and yet somehow I didn't leave I just kind of stayed in that connection or that bond or that room or whatever the scenario might be and so can you help take some of the shame off for people as they may be like, Oh my gosh, I have been that person who went back or didn't leave or whatever that might look like. Right.
1: Uh, well, let's think about that. Oftentimes it does start with, um, childhood lessons and it may not be abuse that happened in childhood it may have been a very strict parent that gave no room for disobedience so you did it their way or there was a punishment involved and so while there wasn't um, what we would think of as blatant abuse uh, um, that child has grown up knowing that if i push back in any way it's going to be so much worse and so as adults, when we are in um, extreme situations with abusive people or dangerous people we kind of tend to respond in similar kinds of ways. And it's like something takes over inside of us and safety. I often say safety first to, to the people that I work with, right? I want you safe. Um, and so I think all of us want to be safe. And for people who grow up in homes where you're right, no matter what they do, it's not going to go well for them, then it's, it, it becomes an issue of, I don't want to make it worse, so I'm not going to make this person angry, right. right? because anger is dangerous. And so they're making decisions based on experience, on deeply held beliefs, angry people, are dangerous. Mm. If I can make this person somewhat happy with me, if I can make them not hate me, or if I can make them um, even neutral towards me Mm. in the moment, then I'm not going to get hit, maybe. Or if I do get hit, maybe he'll only hit me two or three times instead of beat me until I'm unconscious. These kinds of things. And so when you look back and you say, gosh, I wish I should have or could have, or I don't think that's helpful. I actually think that that's so much more damaging because now you're shaming yourself on something you had no control over. Right.
0: Absolutely. And so a lot of times, like where we started at the beginning of the episode, the memories, we get stuck in the loop where they keep popping back up. What are some of the psychological and maybe physiological brain reasons that those memories keep? auto-populating back in the mind right i
1: think all of us have heard of the term trigger right that's a trigger um but we have two different kinds of memories we have explicit and then we have implicit and they're not in the same parts of the brain Mm -hmm. so um, right behind your forehead called the prefrontal cortex don't you just love these terms you know you toss them out at the dinner table you're gonna look so brilliant right that's right prefrontal cortex uh, right behind your forehead and our explicit memory is housed right here. Explicit means that um, I'm able to tell you the story about something. Um, I have a language. I have a sense of time. Um, So let's say somebody's watching this podcast right now, but maybe next year, they're not going to be able to tell you all the details about what they heard, or even if they even saw the podcast at all. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, probably by dinner time tonight, they're gonna to be able to tell their friends all the things that they heard or maybe learned or maybe caused them to to think about from this podcast. Yes. And so that's an explicit memory. It has a language, it has a sense of time, but over time it will lose its detail. Mm-hmm. Now triggers don't belong right here triggers belong in the limbic system so it's right in the middle of your brain right at the top of the brain stem so if you if you went you know right in the middle from ear to ear and straight down you're going to find the limbic system and the limbic system is really close To our emotions, Mm -hmm. it's also really close to the thing that controls our heartbeat and the adrenaline and cortisol, which is the stress hormone. Um, And these memories sometimes will happen implicit memories without us even realizing we're having a memory. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be bad. I talk about going into somebody's home and all of a sudden I get the warm, fuzzy feelings. And if I sat and thought about it, I would realize it smells just like my grandma's kitchen. Mm -hmm. You know, and my grandma was somebody who loved me so deeply and I always felt loved and safe in her home. So when I smell those kinds of things, I get warm, fuzzy feelings. Now, those implicit memories lose none of their power over time. So it's as if it just happened.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, I gave a good example. But there are so many examples that are very um, hurtful. Yeah. They're scary. Um, it could be a sexual assault. It could be all number of things that are things that cause horror in us. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend who's a, a, psycholo- a psychiatrist. And he told me one time um, that he actually had to watch his calendar because there was a sexual assault victim that would see him for medication kinds of things. And he said, I have to make sure I don't wear a cologne that day because mm-hmm. the cologne that his wife bought for him was the same cologne that her perpetrator was wearing when she was assaulted. Yeah. And so she smells that smell mm-hmm. and it puts her right back in to the, that, that, that room that night when she was assaulted as if it were just happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's body memory. So people oh, yeah. start to have physiological experiences and mm-hmm. obviously you can't say all of it, but I think many times people having panic attacks are actually having a trigger of an implicit memory that exactly. may not have language, but something inside is alerting. I feel unsafe, mayday, panic, And so if we just try to keep squashing that back down, we're playing whack-a-mole with our soul and we're never creating margin and space to properly heal and allow that to finally be processed and metabolized. What would be a healthy way that somebody could take an implicit memory and now work through that trauma memory?
1: Um, I say talking it out. Uh, I I think with somebody who is trusted, somebody who is wise, somebody who understands um, how to listen with no judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think somebody who listens and um, doesn't, isn't fast to give advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just listen. And, and then give words of wisdom. I think that can be very helpful. If that's not enough, then seek out somebody who is a professional. Mm-hmm. But I, I think talking it through and kind of working back, what was it about that situation that you were in when you started to panic? What were you seeing? What were you smelling? What were you feeling in the moment? And seeing if, if we can somehow um, find the link. What was that that caused it? Because I do believe that we can take those implicit memories and give it a language, yeah. be able to talk about what it was. Um, I'm gonna tell a story of, the, of, a, of a, a person that I saw so long ago, you'll, you, you won't know them, but um, she was in nursing school and um, she did her emergency room rotation and somebody had abused a baby. And, um, and there was a, a burn on the baby. And she sat in my office and she just robbed. And she said, oh, the smell. And that's all she could say is, oh, the smell. And, uh, and it was the smell of burnt flesh. And uh, I know it's, it's absolutely horrible, um, but we had to give her language. We had to give her a way of talking about her experience more than, oh, the smell. Because when you can actually give a language, now you can look at the experience. You can pull it into cognition where you've got a language now. You've got a way of saying, oh, right. I smell this or I could see the, the bright lights of the emergency room or, or something. And, and it puts me back in that place. I know what I'm, I know what I'm feeling and I know why I'm feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's no longer scary.
0: Yeah. Because there's power when we finally bring it conscious. And that's where on the psychodynamic side, I would say there's physiological brain regions, but there's also parts of the soul that are holding that that I don't think that there's a file cabinet or a trash can. There's a literal part of the soul that's holding that secret for you, containing it. And then every once in a while, there's enough stress and lack of sleep triggers in the environment around you. And it's like that part of yeah. self is mm-hmm. now trying to communicate. But then I keep ostracizing, disavowing that voice and that narrative that so it never gets processed and a house divided against itself can't stand. So then people gain more anxiety because somewhere inside, there's a part of my defense mechanism going, whoa, I know that's there. Whoa, hold that back. Can't let that out. And so if, if natural part of us wants to avoid pain, right? Like we have nerve endings at the end of our hand Mm -hmm. and we go, oh my gosh, everything inside of me doesn't want to touch that hot thing. I don't have to think about it. My hand has a reflex arc region of the brain that goes, Ooh, pull back, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really low brainstem that I don't have to think about that response. I immediately pull back. And for anyone who's listening, I just want to normalize, if you're having a hard time sitting and processing your trauma or being consistent with therapy or journaling or any groups that you might be a part of, that's because there's nerve endings metaphorically, like at the end of your hand that go, whoa, pain, I don't want to go there. But what we've found is if you can counter condition Classical conditioning, if you can change that response and you can sit with it, now you're training your body and your soul that that I'm not frozen there anymore. I can now be present with the memory, present with the part of myself holding that. I don't need to defend and protect, uh, hold the fortress down anymore. Once I can open up and surrender, now you're actually made to heal. And that's the wonderful part about post-traumatic growth is psychologically, you can advance and go further than you ever thought you could. You could be more brave. You could feel more intensely and in the good way, as much as the pain way, like life can become more vibrant after that brush with death or that experience. But so much more, if we can actually bring these parts of self that have been holding those trauma states, I've seen people become more creative, more spontaneous, more entrepreneurial and brave in life. But it's that hurdle of saying, okay, I'm finally going to surrender and allow that pain to happen. Not just the words, but also the pain with the words, which is that grieving and honoring the wrongfulness of what's happened. What do you think might be some things that would help people sit down with that pain when everything inside of them doesn't want to talk about it. want to bottle it up in a very dark place in the attic of my mind, far, far away. Right. How can we help encourage people that it really is worth it to directly address the trauma at the pace that they can handle
1: the first thing that i will say is is what i just heard you say is i think not being afraid of it mm-hmm. uh, if you think of that um people lose sleep over the memories they, they because you have to relax in order to go to sleep and when you relax all those memories come back right okay so they're losing sleep which mm-hmm. drives anxiety up and depression we know that, right? And health conditions. So, right. And so if you're telling someone, don't be afraid of the memories. Don't be afraid of them. It's okay to think about them. It is okay to process them. Um, I think the fear goes up. And I, I, I think for people who are in that spot, sitting with someone who is safe and someone who can help them process is so very important. And again, I don't think it has to be a professional. It might be a professional. It could be somebody who is just trusted and wise to sit with them. Um, I think learning to roll with pain is okay. Feeling pain is okay. Um, Unlike touching a stove with your fingers, touching the flame with your fingers, It will sear the nerve endings and they will never, never work again. Mm -hmm. It is not true when you sit with painful memories, Mm -hmm. you will be okay. Right. That's a starting place. That is the starting place is not being afraid of what happened to you. Because if somebody is, is in a place where they can have memories, then they are in a place where they can grow from those memories.
0: Yeah. Right. And in reality, we've already lived through it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the fear of the unknown, the fear of allowing a memory to come back, allowing that emotion to come back, the event actually already happened. It's just encapsulated in a protection mechanism right now. And we have many of those. Sometimes it's self-harm. Sometimes it's staying in replication of trauma, staying in uh, cyclical relationship patterns that are unhealthy. Sometimes it's binge eating as a way to self-harm or to fill an emptiness inside. We have so many ways that we're actually harming ourselves far more by allowing trauma to stay encapsulated. Now, I do believe there's times that we need to, you know, just function, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of times our childhood trauma, it would be really painful to have that conscious all the time. We need to learn right. math and writing books and, you know, doing things, right. or riding bikes and reading books is what I meant to say. Um, But if we can bring that conscious, it's already happened. And now you have a corrective experience that this time you're not alone. And the outcome finally gets to shift from where before it's like frozen in this toxic, terrible moment. There's a literal part of your soul still frozen in that moment. That's why it keeps triggering and coming back up because (laughs) that is what your soul is beholding every day in that unconscious room. So when we bring it conscious, now the voice is restored. Now the emotion is no longer trapped and stored in the physical body, which is causing sickness and pain and anxiety and depression and uneasiness and insomnia. But if we can clear that out, you've already lived through it. So by confronting it, now you're allowing your soul to kind of go through a refresh, you know, like a computer that needs to be defragmented, if you will. Right,
1: right. Speaking of of computers i use the analogy of your computer searching for a file and not being able to find the file and you have the 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 little icon goes around and around and around and i think that's what our brain does when it it is trying to make sense of a trauma Um, we all have files for different things like what to do in certain kinds of situation but when a trauma has happened to us we don't have a file for that. It is so outside of what life, it, you know, life is supposed to bring us that we don't know what to do with that. And just like memories are a problem in, in post-trauma, meaning is also a problem in post-trauma. So when somebody is starting to work through the memories, now you have the meaning. Uh, They thought life was a certain way. They thought the world worked in a certain way. And I wanna touch base on something called just world theory, J-U-S-T, just world theory, meaning the world is predictable and it is a fair place. And I think everybody listening is probably gonna say, no, it's not because, well, it's not, but it's this notion that if you do all the right things, then only good things are gonna to happen to you. Nothing bad is gonna happen. And I, I hear a lot of the people I work with say, if I had only done fill in the blank something, then this bad thing would have, would not have happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think life works that way. I think things happen to us that when we woke up that morning, we never would have dreamed. And we have done nothing unusual during the day, but yet something bad happened. And I think that it's, it's somewhat true that if you do um, wise things, then generally your, your life is going to go somewhat okay. But we just can't predict those elements like a car accident or a robbery or an assault. Nobody thinks those things are going to happen. And so what ends up happening is, is the, the person who's experienced those things blames themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's a payoff here. If they can say that they were partially or fully responsible for this thing that happened to them and they don't do those whatever they think they did wrong, if they don't ever do that again, then the rest of their life is going to go well and they don't have to be in fear. So there's a payoff here. The problem is, is they feel such guilt and such shame about whatever they have identified that they did wrong, um, that they can't get past that. Mm-hmm. But so many people would rather live with the shame than the uncertainty that something bad could happen again. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what I see a lot of. The other thing is, is um, I see Christians, people with faith, saying, where was God? I thought God loved me, and I see this really shaking the foundation of how they 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 truly believe the world works, how God works in their life. Mm-hmm. And um, the one thing I'm gonna I'm gonna just really encourage people on is while you, while people may feel shaken in a season, on the backside of after they've worked through this, their relationship with the Lord tends to be so much deeper and so much so much stronger i think about what um what uh, the bible says about the refiner's fire i think it's in first peter the refiner's fire and it talks about um, being refined by fire but that that term refined by fire is brutal it is like a blacksmith that that puts iron in a fire and then he hammers it and puts it back in the fire and pulls it out and hammers it some more it's brutal But on the, on the backside of it, whatever that blacksmith was making is beautiful Mm -hmm. and it is useful and it is strong, but please don't hear me say that God causes all these bad things to happen for whatever reason, he has allowed something to come into our lives, but he says, I'm not leaving you. I am right there with you. I will never forsake you. I'm not leaving you. And if you let me, I will work in your life until something incredible happens. That's so, good. so that's hope right
0: there. Yes. It's restorative. Yeah. It's hopeful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's how we get the anointing is through that yeah. crushing and that breaking again, not God causing but no. living in a broken world where bad things happen and people have free will, how God can turn it together for good. Mm-hmm. And, um, if anybody's listening right now and maybe some of the things we've said may even be stirring some things up, I want you to know that God did not cause those bad things. Right. Absolutely. 100%. You have Shannon in Dolby surround sound, you know, right. <laughs> here, um, who will want you to hear it is not something you did wrong. You're not a bad person. You did not deserve whatever happened to you. And even if you can point at something of like, well, I did do this or I did do this part, that's part of that illusion of control where we keep looking for how I'm to blame because if at least I can control me and put me under lock and key, then I can have the illusion that nothing else bad could ever happen again. But what that does is it keeps shame and condemnation and heaviness, control and perfectionism I have so many clients that come in thinking they just have an issue with self-esteem or perfectionism or have a hard time with self-sabotage. And many times it's actually rooted in an unconscious trauma, something that hasn't been resolved. And now they've lived their life up to this point with this illusion. If I'm just perfect enough, if I just do everything God wants me to do or my boss or my family, if I'm, if I just follow every rule, then I have this illusion that I'll be safe because there's a part of you constantly holding the trauma in which you were not safe and so you're defending it's like he who protesteth too much i'm trying Mm -hmm. to defend against a state that's actually real and living inside of you there's a literal part of your soul that needs comfort needs reassurance and i've had incredible experiences with clients that once we can finally kind of metaphorically lay down those walls tell the story grieve get the emotion out of your physical body Um, And this is not an infomercial by any means, but I have literally seen people's health conditions start to abate their sleeping starts to improve relationships, Mm -hmm. start to improve job quality and performance start to improve because if you're a computer and you have too many browser windows and they're conflicting and you have viruses of trauma living inside of you, you can't function properly. Mm-hmm. You're just yeah. going to feel like glitchy and broken and shame and what's wrong with me. And I have no self-control. And why do I keep overeating or overdrinking or overspending? And why do I do this? Because you're not getting legitimate comfort. And so your you know need for homeostasis means I have to go get some form of comfort in an exaggerated way, because your soul is chronically in a state of discomfort, disease, not feeling well. It's not well with our soul to leave that trauma down there. So we want you to tell your story. We want you to get unstuck out of this illusion of control to stop blaming and shaming yourself for living in the what ifs and what should have been and what could have been. That is a legitimate stage of grief. That's the bargaining stage. But we need to move through that, go through the sad, go through the anger, feel all of those things. But progress through it and let down those, uh, the illusion of false responsibility that somehow if I had just done it differently, then this bad thing wouldn't have happened. In reality, sometimes bad things just happen. And it's a painful reality to live in a broken world. And if you don't have hope and you need somebody to talk to, please reach out to healthy community. Reach out to a therapist, somebody that can walk with you in that process. And I would love for you to know that Jesus said, it's better that I go away, that then the comforter, the Holy Spirit can come. Um, So if you haven't asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, right now is a great opportunity for him to become your friend. He did not cause the trauma and he promises that he will walk with you even through the shadow of the valley of death, even in the most painful moments. And he would love to be a healthy Good, safe friend for you to walk through that journey with. And then you can say, Holy Spirit, come fill this place where I'm aching and I'm needing comfort. It's not a fix all. You still have to process the trauma, just like how Dr. Uh, Wolf had to go back to school and kind of learn how to do that. If you have extensive trauma, please go to a trauma informed therapist. But that comfort of the Holy Spirit can wrap around you like a comforter blanket, and you can visualize God just pouring liquid love inside of you. And that's available for you today nobody um nobody deserves it all of us have fallen short like i am so the poster child of doesn't deserve good things Mm -hmm. and yet god freely extends grace to you so i just want to give that opportunity um that if anyone is listening and you're dealing with trauma that there is help on many different fronts including uh the faith element of letting god be there and care about your heart
1: That is so well said. I'm so glad you shared that
0: with people. Big friend. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have to bring Dr. Wolf back. She is incredible. You. Um, you can't get enough of two Shannons in one interview. Oh so right. uh, she's fantastic. And how can people connect with you if they want to hear more about trauma-informed therapy or what you're doing in the human trafficking space? Sure.
1: Um, my email is shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N, at southcliff.com, and that's S-O-U-T-H-C-L-I-F-F dot com. That would be okay. a great way.
0: Awesome. And she also works in the space of suicide prevention. Um, she does talks. So you're also welcome to invite her if you're needing a plenary speaker. She is incredible and well-informed, well-researched, and a keynote speaker at many conferences. So we love you, Shannon. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It's a privilege. And everybody out there, I bless you with so much hope, so much peace that you know you're in this part of your journey, but on the other side, the refiner's fire, the beauty, the elegance, that beauty comes from ashes. So please stay, stay hopeful, keep going. Um, It will get better. Bye guys. Hey, thanks so much for watching this episode of Unlock You. It is our dream to invest in you. And one of the ways you can do that is by getting more of the bonus material, the content, and to know about future events. Head to the website, drshannoncrawford.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and you'll be the first to know what we're rolling out. And we want you to truly get unlocked so that you can thrive, not only for yourself, but also for the greater calling on your life. Let's link arms and do it together. See you in the next episode.